You're now listening to the Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. The Lone Wolf Podcast. to episode 013 of the Lone Wolf Podcast. I'm sitting here with my brother, Jonathan Wolf, and my uh, uncle, Jeffrey Wolf, and uh, I guess I'm just going to let you guys go and talk about what you were talking about before. So you want you want us to talk about what we were just talking about? Yeah, no, it's juicy. Okay, uh, so I was, I was well, telling... Well, can I just say something for the record? Oh, sure. Just go ahead and interrupt That was Jeff. a really shitty introduction. Th- that was really bad, actually. <laughs> that, that was, was awful. That was embarrassing. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Okay, um, go ahead, proceed. Yeah, yeah. I you know, I think I can I think I can I think I can re I think I can get the rebound though. Uh, I think I can I can turn this into a into uh two points for the team. Okay. <laughs> no, so you want us to talk about so be so before Michael turned the microphones on, Jeff and I were talking about books that we had read recently and I was telling him a story about a, a book I finished recently called uh The Good Nurse and I can't think of the name of the author, some some liberal journalist from the East Coast. Um some white guy from the East Coast. I don't know, but anyway, it was it was a good, it was a, it was a good it was a good story. He could have written it a lot better, but that's besides the point. But it's about it's about the most prolific serial killer in the history of the of the United States. It's it's this guy named Charlie Cullen, and um, the authorities that, that that finally put him behind jail or finally put him behind bars, they estimated that he killed over 400 people. And the thing that's so shocking about this man Charlie Cullen is that. He wasn't a thief in the night, uh, you know, pantyhose over the face, knife-wielding serial killer. He was a registered nurse, and he killed people in the hospital. And so I was, I was telling uh, Jeff before we started, he would, he would kill people randomly. And if you, if you look at the literature of, of medical serial killers, a lot of them follow this, this, this kind of line of, you know, they were, they were compassionate killers. You know, they killed people who were who were in pain or people who were suffering. But Charlie Cullen killed people randomly. He would inject bags of saline with with insulin so that their blood sugars would plummet, or he would inject bags of saline with with a drug called uh, digoxin, which is uh, which was originally used to treat heart failure. But if you give a patient too much, it'll 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 cause their heart to stop. And so he would do this randomly. He 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 wouldn't do it. I mean, he killed patients that weren't his. He killed patients that were not even on the same floor that he was working on. He just randomly injected bags. And what I was telling Jeff is that what's interesting in the, in the story isn't so much that he killed so many people, although that's interesting. What's interesting is that the authorities knew and suspected for 16 years that he was killing patients. And he was fired from six or seven different hospitals. And each hospital had a massive investigation where they... They suspected that he was the one that was that was involved with these these weird deaths, but the hospitals would suppress the investigation because they didn't want the bad, they didn't want the 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 public outcry. They didn't want it to hit the newspapers and and to look bad on the hospital that you have a rogue nurse killing patients in your institution. So, and then you, Jeff, when I was telling that story, said that it reminded you of something. Well, it reminded me of a case of a, a book that I'd read years and years ago. Another true story of a woman who adopted children, and uh, almost all of the children she adopted died, 
under mysterious circumstances. Well, the mysterious circumstance was her, of course. <laughs> she had Munchausen's by proxy. And for those who don't know what that is, that's where you get off on getting lots of attention because your children are sick or on the verge of death and lots of drama. Oh, oh, you poor mother. Oh, how are you doing it? And, you know, we'll pray for you and your child and so forth. Well, again, and she had people who suspected her, but they would move. And they would go to different places and adopt children from different orphanages and different locales. And uh, no checking was done. And this went on for I don't know how many years until finally someone suspected enough to say, no, we've, we've got to nail this bitch. They, they found, they were able to look into her past and find that all these kids who she had adopted died. And it was all written off as SIDS, you know, sudden infant death syndrome. Well, really what she was doing was suffocating them. And, um, but even, even with all that, they had a hard time putting a stop to her, to nailing her. Uh, but, it, I mean, it wasn't a case of, of, of greed and CYA as it was with these horrendous hospitals. And by the way, if they were so intent on saving their reputation, I wonder what their reputation is like now. I would never go to a hospital. I mean, it's all out now. I guess we know which hospitals it was and why they did this. And uh, in my mind, those everybody who who was involved in keeping this hush hush should be prosecuted right along with the guy who did this. Well, and and most of the hospitals were in New Jersey, and they were also in Pennsylvania too. And he would just go back and forth. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that whenever he started getting whenever he started getting more heat on him was when electronic health record systems came into play because they can keep they can keep more accurate records on what you're doing and and when you go into a patient's record in an, in an electronic health record system a software based system there's a timestamp in the background that, that that tells you exactly when you went in what what part of the chart you looked at and and even then with all that data the private investigators that were hired to look into this guy they weren't able to make heads or tails of it until they they co-opted this this nurse who had been working with this guy for about a year, and they had her review the records. And then w what's really interesting is she was able to figure out what he was doing because for for um, for many many years he would he would he would go into a machine that we call the Pixis machine, and there's different brands that that make a machine, but it's a it's a medication dispensing machine. And in a hospital, when you're in a hospital and you, and you have to have Tylenol, let's say, or you have to have Vicodin, a nurse goes into a machine and then they select your name and they select the medication and then the machine opens up and, and then you take the medication out and then you close the machine and there's records of it. Well, he um, had shown in, in, in the past that he was, he was taking out the drug called digoxin. He was taking out massive quantities. And all of a sudden, when they started to investigate him towards the end, those records stopped. He was suddenly no longer pulling out this drug called digoxin from the Pixis. And it was, it was a nurse that these private investigators hire, hired who was able to look at his, medic, his, his Pixis records, and she was able to see, oh, he, he's pulling out a lot of Tylenol. Well, the Tylenol compartment, because these machines, they're like drawers that you open up, and there's little cubby holes in them. 
she was the one who was able to make the connection of the Tylenol is in a cubby hole right next to the right next to the digoxin. So he was selecting Tylenol on the machine, but he wasn't pulling Tylenol out of the out of the drawer. He was pulling out another drug. And so, but but even then, it 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 took them finding this nurse who was willing to go through all these records. And then what's interesting in the story is that the hospital whenever this private investigator brought this to their attention, they still tried to suppress the information. And the, the chief of risk management, the, 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 basically the, the, the chief legal person at the hospital, um, gave the lead investigator false information. She told him that the Pixis machine only kept records for 30 days, which wasn't true. They, kept, they keep records from the time the, the machine leaves the manufacturing to the time that the machine is destroyed basically and you can you can get records that are five years old you can get records that are ten years old however old the machine is you can you can get the records off of the hard drive and 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 the risk manager knew this was not true knew that this was a lie and in spite of that she still told the lead investigator oh no we can only get records from the medication dispensing machine for the last 30 days and so and please tell me that she's been they, 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 you know, I when I as I was reading, I thought I thought that that was going to come up, but it 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 never came back up. She should at least at least be charged with obstruction of justice. Yes, yes. You know, something I'm more fascinated in is not the crime itself, but what, like, the history of these people that committed these crimes. What may have happened in their lives to cause them to be this bitter and hateful towards humanity? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking about this to. A gentleman at work the other day, and uh, he listens to a podcast <laughs> quite religiously. And one of the podcasts he enjoys the most is a, tr a true crime podcast. And they were talking about what the whys and what they found in common with serial killers. And one of the things, I mean, some of it is uh, not not so surprising. Uh, difficult past that feature abuse and. Uh, uh, horrendous abuse normally and things like this. Uh, of course, mo a lot of people experience horrendous abuse and they don't have any desire to hurt or kill anyone. But one of the things that he mentioned that I had not heard of before was that they have found a commonality of some kind of b severe brain injury. Um, and that, that rang a bell. I thought, okay, though that, that sounds like a missing piece to me. Uh, horrendous abuse mixed with severe brain injury, which can lead to someone not being able to think straight uh, and yet having all of this rage. And you know, when you're a child, there's nothing you can do about abuse. There's nothing you can do if you're, if you're enraged. What are you going to do? Beat up the person who's, who's doing this to you? You can't. You can't get away from it. You're stuck. As an adult, though, now you've got power. And now you can fight back. Now you can unleash your anger. And if you, if you don't have the capacity to deal with it here in your brain anymore, that, that sort of resonated with me. and It gave me kind of an aha moment. And also, it sort of gave, gave me, too, a sense of hope that if this is a feature in the causation of, of this, type of acting out, then perhaps it can be treated somehow, you know, if people will, will focus on that. So often, though, I think we're so into let's kill the bastard and so, you know, that we don't 
think of what, what we might be able to do to prevent some of these things from happening. Well, have you, have you ever heard of uh, Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert Sapolsky? He's a, he's a, he's a really interesting scientist. He's primarily a primatologist, but he's also a neurobiologist. And he wrote a book recently called uh, Behave, Human Beings at Our Best and Worst. And it's a, it's a book about the neurocognitive origin of human behavior. And he makes a very compelling case that, that all of our behavior is, is, is within our brains. That it's, that it's a complex interaction, obviously, of our brains and our environment. But a lot of times in our, in our culture, we try to downplay the role that the brain has on behavior. And I think a lot of it is because we, people, are, people have a hard time accepting that somebody's bad behavior might be caused by structural abnormalities in their brain and not, not necessarily because of a, some sort of moral or spiritual failing. So you and see there is hope for liberalism after all. There is, there is, yeah, there is. It isn't their fault. It isn't their Funnel fault. lobotomies. And right, right, right. Their brains are smaller. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's science. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he, uh, one of the things that he, that, that he talks about in the book, right, well, actually, I, that he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and Joe Rogan interviewed him, and, and he said, Joe Rogan asked him a question. He said, you know, we look back to some of the medical science of the 1950s, for, inst for instance, in psychiatric hospitals, they used to put people in what were called insulin comas. And so in order to treat schizophrenia, they would load people up with insulin, drop their blood sugar down to basically zero, and put the patient into a seizure for, you know, sometimes hours. And then they would bring them out of it. And they thought that this had a way of stabilizing the brain. Ironically, inducing a small seizure has been shown in the medical literature to uh, treat people that have severe depression. Um, but anyway, Joe Rogan asked him, what, are, what do you think we're going to look back at in, in 100 years? Um, stuff that we're doing now that, that, in, that in 100 years from now we're going to say, wow, those knuckle dragon Neanderthals, can you believe they did X, Y, Z? And Robert Sapolsky, without missing a beat, he said, well, I think, I think in 100 years we're going to look back and we're going we're gonna to say, can you believe that we put people in jail for life? for committing murder when they had structural problems with their brains. Can you believe that we sent people to their deaths for committing XYZ because they had brains that were not functioning properly? And, and he truly believes that a lot, of the, a lot of the behavioral abnormalities that you see in people, whether it's caused by sociocultural changes that happened in childhood, ultimately they manifest themselves because of damage to the brain in some way and that a healthy brain more than likely would not engage in that kind of behavior. And so he, he, makes, the, he makes a pretty strong argument that in a lot of ways it's, it's not their fault for people that have serious brain damage. And you see that with, uh, with athletes that have CTE, you know, what is it, Concuss concussive traumatic encephalopathy. I, I can't think of the name of the, but it's, it's, it's like these people, you know, the family say, oh, he was always, he was always a nice boy, he was, he was normal, and then one day, he uh, came home and he murdered everybody. And, and, and then they do a CAT scan and they find out, oh, well, he's got massive holes in his brain from where he had repeated, you know, repetitive concussions and brain tissue, brain tissue was destroyed. Well, I, it's interesting that I, I remember uh, watching a film about the Texas, Texas University shooter in the, I think the late 60s, uh, who just suddenly um, killed his family went to a tower at the university and just started shooting people from the tower at the university. I don't, can't remember how many people were killed and injured. 
And uh, but they found that he'd had a, a brain tumor. And uh, I think it's, I think it was Charles Charles Whitmore, wasn't yes, it? Yeah, yeah, Charles Whitmore. That sounds right. And and he left a note because he 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 killed his wife, and then he left a note saying, "I don't know why I did what I just did. I love this woman, but mm. when you find my body, can you please look at my brain? Because I think there's something wrong with my oh. brain." That that was the story that I heard. I don't know if it's true oh. or not, but that was the story that I heard. Well, and you know, isn't it interesting? Uh, and we're talking now specifically about serial killers, but there are people who exhibit other forms of behavior that they um, don't like and yet feel helpless against. Uh, I'm thinking now about child molesters where they, they literally beg people, but you know, castrate me, please castrate me. They, they can't stand it themselves. Um, and, and wouldn't it be interesting to find something along those same lines with these people as well? That there's something in the brain that maybe with, with some kind of medication or perhaps some kind of procedure, something could make things better right. for them. I don't know. I wish there was some way you could do some minority report thing where you could just scan them and if they don't have that, castrate them and let them bleed. Or let them die via bleeding out of their <laughs> castrated penis. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, when I hear stories like that, I'm, I'm kind of ruthless. I believe in eye for an eye punishment. Well, and that's, and that's, and there, of course, there isn't anything wrong with that. Um, however, I, I know um, people. Uh, there was a gentleman who's in prison right now for child pornography. And when I knew him, I don't know if he was into that when I knew him or not. It, we'd, we'd lost track of each other for a while. But uh, when he was arrested, of course, this was bandied about in the newspapers and his photograph was in the papers and all kinds of things like this. And the comments from people. Oh, what a monster! Look at him. He's and and he deserves and just fill in the blank and any kind of torture you can imagine. And of course, of course, that's a normal response. I have nothing against that response at all. Um, I, in fact, I've I've had I respond that way myself. And yet, I knew him. And it's not it was I couldn't dismiss him as a monster because I knew his good qualities. And so it, 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 it that haunted me, <laughs> you know. And when you think of the the statistics of how widespread this activity is, um, it's really impossible to dismiss all these people as just monsters. <laughs> and so I think there's there's uh, people. Are, I think it's difficult to look at. Okay, what's 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 causing this and what can we maybe we can do as an as a society or or something to put some emphasis on the genesis of it so that we can prevent the what happens at the other end we're we're focusing on a lot on what happens at the other end which is okay but if we could prevent some of this stuff in the beginning you know there wouldn't be victims in the to begin with well and and to your point, too, there's a really interesting Radiolab podcast that I listened to about a year ago. Um, Radiolab, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, they, they're... I haven't listened to them recently because they've gone down the liberal Trumpist Hitler 
rabbit hole, and I'm just not interested. But before Trump got into office, they, they would do these really interesting episodes. And one episode was about a, was about a guy, a uh, normal, normal guy. Um, all of a sudden, he's driving home from work. And, uh, and the way that the Radio Lab podcast goes is, is it's like a story. And, you, and there's always a punchline about five minutes into it. But you don't know. You, you know it's coming, but you don't know what the, what, how the story is going to turn. And the story is um, this guy was in his car driving home from work, and all of a sudden he says he feels this, 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 this weird thing start to happen in his body. And he, and he says, and I thought to myself, oh, no, it's back. And he ended up having a seizure. He ended up having a grand mal seizure, and he wrecks his car. And then um, the story kind of takes off from there. So he, he had had epilepsy as a child, and then he grew out of it, and then it came back as an adult. And this time it came back in a very, very severe fashion to where he, he, medication wouldn't control it. And so out of sort of desperation, they ended up doing a neurosurgical procedure where they, they cut out the part of the brain that, that the seizure was, local, you know, was localized to. And this is something that they do sometimes to pe- people that have severe epilepsy. They'll actually go in and they'll, they'll remove the brain tissue that is, that is, the, that is the loci, the the, the the point of origin of the seizure activity. And so anyway, so the story goes on and he, he talks about how <coughs> he talks about how he was seizure free. And he ends up finding a spouse and they 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 hit it off and they end up getting married. And four or five years down the road, they're they're in they're in Florida, they're on vacation and they're just enjoying themselves and they hear a knock at the door. And he goes and he answers the door. And standing outside of the door is the FBI. And there's 12 or 15 men with guns. And they've got SWAT gear on. And they're serving a search warrant. And his wife is the one who answers the door. And she's completely freaked out. She thinks that they have the wrong house. And they come in. And this man who had the seizures, as soon as he saw the FBI there, he said, oh, I know know what you're here for. And it was child pornography. And then the story kind of takes off from there, and the story talks about how after he had this brain surgery, he all of a sudden became hypersexual. And his wife talked about how, he, how she couldn't even have a normal conversation with him because he would, he would start pawing on her, and then it, it was like he had this, this, this voracious sexual appetite that wasn't there before. And... And then, then, then they, they go to interview him, and he said, yeah, I, I, I never had any desire to even look at pornography until after I had this procedure, until after I had this part of my brain removed. And then all of a sudden, I'm finding myself looking at internet pornography 16, 18 hours a day, and it's getting more and more extreme, and then eventually it got into child pornography. And anyway, they, they end up, um, during the trial, this guy, this guy goes to trial, the lawyer that, that, that he picked to defend him thought that there that that there might be might be a connection between the the neurosurgical procedure he had and his his newfound appetite for child pornography so they they called in this guy who was who was who was an expert in uh sexual dysfunction people that have fetishes that are that are you know that are destructive and the sort of neurological basis for a lot of these and this guy was able to pinpoint a massive study that was done, I think it was in the 80s or 90s, where they removed the, the exact part, the, the exact same anatomical structure in the brain of, I think it was rhesus monkeys, 
It was some sort of primate. And these rhesus monkeys became super hyper, super hypersexual. They, they, they would have sex with everything and anything, including baby rhesus monkeys, which rhesus monkeys don't do. They were having sex with other male rhesus monkeys. They were, they were just these, these little horny monkeys. And um, so they, they were able to prove, basically, that this guy's sexual issue was directly related to him, him having that part of his brain removed. And um, he ended up, I think he ended up going to jail for a very, very short period of time. The judge was compassionate enough to accept the scientific evidence in the courtroom and gave him a shortened sentence. But they interviewed Robert Sapolsky, um, coming back to him, and they said, if you were the judge, would you have sentenced, would you have sentenced, you know, sentenced the guy to jail? And he said, no, I wouldn't have given him any sentence. He, he said it wasn't his fault at all. He said he had absolutely no control. And the host said, ah, but, but Dr. Sapolsky, he did have control because he wasn't looking at child pornography while he was at work. He wasn't looking at child pornography in public places. He knew that there were certain, he knew that it was taboo because he would do it secretly in the, in the privacy of his own bedroom. And Robert Sapolsky said, well, yeah. And in the original study with the rhesus monkeys, if you go back and look at it, the rhesus monkeys would not engage in sexual behavior all the time. You could give them toys, and they would play with toys. You could give them other activities, and they would engage in they would engage in the other activities. And they wouldn't have sex when they were when they or they wouldn't desire sex when they were engaging in those activities. And uh, it, it was just an interesting, you know, you know, kind of tr trying to piggyback onto what you were saying. It's it's you know, I th I think there's some there is something to that. Yeah. And if we could develop a procedure in the future that would fix people's brains. You know th that would be interesting, and that would be worthwhile. That would be worth pursuing. But in the meantime, I don't see the public being okay with accepting that kind of argument, saying, "Oh, well, this guy's a this guy's a pedophile because part of his brain is, you know, has been destroyed." And you know, and yet, of course, when it hits home, and I'm thinking now not just about the you know the victims, but um, the spouses, the other children who may or may not have been involved, um, aunts and uncles and so forth, who, like my friend, I, you know, you can't dismiss these people as just, oh, well, they're just monsters to get, destroy them. And, um, and I, I agree, I don't think we're there yet as, as a society, but I really do. I, I think that is the answer, ultimately, to to the problem of of how do we how do we help? You know, there's there's tragedies on all sides here. <laughs> there's tragedy from the from the beginning of this, all the way through to the to the end of it. And uh, I think, and again, I don't blame people for the, having that reaction at all. I, I as I said, I have that myself. If if you were to see someone raping a child, well, you if you could, you'd probably kill them. And uh, I mean, that's just and and I I have no problem with it. Um, other than in the in the long run, I don't you know you you uh, it, it the 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 hateful uh, response hasn't been working for us too well.
<laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, I think when it comes to the criminal, and by the way, for if anybody's listening to this, I, I, I'm not advocating for, you know, I'm not advocating for compassion necessarily mm. for people who are pedophiles. If no. somebody raped my son, I would, I would murder them. Well, yeah. But, um, or if somebody raped my daughters, I would murder them. And because, if you, because and, and if you were charged with murder, I would not. Right, right. Hold you accountable in right. that situation. Right, and and there's and there's been plenty of examples of that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think I think when it comes to the criminal justice question, there's still the party that's been wronged. So regardless yes. of the etiology of the behavior, regardless of whether or not it's it's because of structural abnormalities in the brain, there's still the innocent child who's yeah. who's been traumatized the rest of the life, you know, for, you know, for the rest of their life. And how do you make how do you find a way to provide justice for that for that child and for that family? And it's a difficult question. It's it's a it's a it's a very difficult question. And the problem, I think, is that the American public, for the most part, they don't have a nuanced view of they aren't able to take a nuanced view of the situation to see both sides. And maybe that's because we're more evolved, Jeff, than everybody else. I <laughs> I, I like to think that must be it. But but it does beg the question of okay, so this this gentleman who had the the brain surgery, and w- the court was merciful. Okay, did they talk about how they prevented him from acting out again? Yeah. So what they did was they they there was a medication, and and this is one of the things. This is the tragedy of the of the entire thing. Um, once his neurologist found out that this had happened, his neurologist felt extreme guilt because. His neurologist knew that this was a possible outcome of him having the surgery, but he never brought the conversation up to the patient. And 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 the patient, the guy that had the neurological or the neurosurgical procedure, never had the courage to tell his neurologist, "Hey, by the way, I'm having this thing," you know. But the neurologist knew that this could happen and knew that there was that there was medications that you could take that would that would suppress this. So after this all came out, the neurologist put him on a medication. I can't remember what it was. And all of those desires completely went away. Oh, wow. And uh, not only that, the guy's, basically the guy's entire sex drive went away. <laughs> but what a small price to pay. Yeah, and, th- and that's what he said. He said, he said look, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm fine with not having a sex drive if it, if it means that I can, if I can control my impulses. And uh and the neurologist was one of the was one of the people that testified during the you know during the trial too. Now the drug that you mentioned. Yeah, I can't remember the name of this it. This is different from what is called chemical castration. This is not chemical castration. I I don't know what I don't know. It very well could be. Okay. Um, I think chemical castration is that is that hormone therapy. I think it's typically hormone therapy. This was this was a, a a drug that acted on the central nervous system. Oh, it specifically okay. acted so on the brain different. to to okay. lo- to lower yeah. to lower uh, activity in certain parts of the brain. Well, thank God. So we have this available mm-hmm. already. Right, right, right. And and I don't know what it was. It it, I mean, I know that a lot of anti-epileptic drugs like gabapentin, for instance, it it, it works by lowering, um, by lowering central nervous system activity. It upregulates GABA and downregulates um. Oh, I can't think. There's a there's another neurotransmitter that 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 is the most excitatory neurotransmitter. It basically downregulates that and upregulates GABA, so it sort of slows the activity of the brain. They use it for, for they used to use it for patients that had seizures, but they use it now for patients that have nerve pain. So it sort of suppresses the brain's mm. ability to respond to, 
you know, fibromyalgic nerve pain. Mm. And um, so it, it may have been something like that. It may have been like an anti-epileptic mm. drug that they found as a, si- as a, as a potential side effect that it, it could also be used to treat this condition yeah. off, off label. You know how it is. And we could probably have an entire podcast on that, on, yeah. on the off-label oh, yeah. uses of pharmaceutical well, yeah. agents. Well, Viagra is a big one. Yeah, Viagra yeah. was originally developed as a blood pressure yeah. medication. <laughs> and they, they discovered that it had a very <laughs> curious side effect. <laughs> and they thought, we could make a hell of a lot more money if we advertise it for that. Can I, now that I have you here, and I always forget to ask you this, and I'm remembering it, so I want to ask it now. We're kind of veering off a little bit, but not not completely. But I remember having a conversation with you. So you're, It's been years ago now but you were you were following the track of a certain drug that was at the time being tested I don't know if it was being tested on humans or not but this was something that could be ingested I believe and it I don't know how it worked but it was a way that they were trying to treat obesity and when they were doing the trials on animals, uh, they found, I think it was rats or whatever it m- was, that they could, basically they could eat whatever they wanted and not get an ounce and not have heart disease or anything like this. And I've often wondered what happened to that and if you had knew. Yeah, I, so the, the, the pharmaceutical agent doesn't have a name it, 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 because it hasn't been, it hasn't gone through the whole FDA approval process. But I know last time I read about it, it's been several years, it's probably been five years, um, but yeah, it was a it was a it was a drug. I don't know if it was a biological agent or if it was a ke- or, if, or, if, or if it was a chemical agent. It was some sort of drug that essentially you give it to mice and they could eat whatever they wanted and they didn't have to exercise and they would maintain a lean body mass and all of their uh, all of their blood markers would stay healthy. So their their triglycerides wouldn't go up, their cholesterol wouldn't go up. Essentially, you could feed them you could feed them corn and not have them exercise and they wouldn't become obese. They wouldn't develop fatty liver disease. And uh, I know the last time I read about it, it, it was in some, it was in a journal, it was in a research journal and it, it was being investigated. But you know how that is. With well, I mean, yes. the FDA approval process cost a billion, <laughs> cost a billion dollars. Yeah. And then yeah. it takes, you know, about a decade to go through all the clinical yeah. trials. Do you remember uh, if they mentioned how? Did it just increase metabolism? or Because or, I'm thinking, okay, if you, if you eat, there's only so many things that can happen. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, the calories get spent through energy. Or they get stored as fat, or they're, they're, they, they get flushed out somehow. And I don't I know think, if they increase the if metabolism. If I, if I remember correctly, the, the, the agent, we'll just call it that, uh, caused your body to partition fuel in such a way that if you didn't need the calories, your body wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't process them. So like now, even if you don't need the calories, your body will process it. So the way it works is, for those people who don't understand how, how it works, when you, eat ex- when you eat an extra calorie, your body uses it. Your body, your body has to use it. It can't just, it can't just get rid of it. For, for the most part, there are some things that pass through your, through your digestive system, like, like fiber. But So the way that your body deals with that is it, is it takes the extra calorie and it converts it to something called glycogen. And then it takes the glycogen and stores it in your liver and also in your muscles. Well, when your glycogen stores have reached a threshold to where you can't store any more glycogen in the liver and in the muscles, it then converts the extra energy to fat tissue. And so that's how you become, that's, that's how you become fat. 
And then what happens is if you stop eating, your body first pulls the glycogen from your liver and your muscles, converts that to uh, glucose. It's a process called gluconeogenesis, the development of new glucose. And then once the glycogen stores are depleted from your liver and your muscles, it then starts pulling fat, and it will convert the fat into a substance called ketones. And ketones, it's an alternative fuel source that your body can run off of. So you don't have to have sugar for your brain to operate. Your brain can run on ketones. So that's why if, if, um, if you uh, are ever lost in the desert and you don't have food for 10 days, uh, one of the things that they will do when they're doing, doing a medical workup is they'll check your urine for ketones. And if your urine has a lot of ketones, they know that you have been in a state of prolonged, prolonged starvation. It's also people that are on a ketogenic diet. It's also why they lose weight because they convert their metabolism over to utilizing ketones, and then you can go long periods of time without eating, and your body will, will naturally pull fat out to, to consume the fat. And um, so I think that's how it works. It, it, it partitions fuel in such a way that if you consume extra calories, your body doesn't utilize them. You just pass it on through your system. So you're only using the exact number of calories that you need. So you can eat all you want as long as you sit on the toilet. <laughs> Basically, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 like I said, it's it's been so long since I've read it, and and I believe you know how it is. You know how it is with um, psychiatric medications, right? When they say the exact mechanism of action is unknown at this at this point, mm, but uh-huh. scientists believe that it affects oh, yeah. the yeah. X Y Z. I think that's how it was with this one. They didn't mm. really know how it worked. Mm. They suspected this is what it did. But they weren't 100% sure. All right, so sorry about this. Um, we were in the garage of Germania, and uh, my brother was getting eaten alive by mosquitoes, so we had to move. It to was kind of a, as entertaining as it was. He insisted <laughs> that we move. Yeah, well, it was whenever the mosquito landed on, on, the, on the head of my penis and bit. That was <laughs> when I decided, okay, we got to move. we got to move somewhere. <laughs> We're um, for those of for those uh, two people who are listening to this. We were. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me and Michael. It's a young podcast. It's going to go viral one of these days. Hopefully. We were sitting in a in a garage in downtown Alton, overlooking the beautiful uh, ambiance of downtown Alton. So there was like and Taco uh, Bell. Yeah, there was a Taco yeah. Bell KFC because you got to have both. Yes. And um, there was a parking lot, which I'm sure I saw about three drug deals go down while we were sitting out there. Um, you know, it's the nicer part of it. And, and Superman, of all people, hanging by his neck. And see, his yeah, and we saw Superman hanging by his neck, which brings me to a question that I had. You were talking about how you, at the age of 50... 55. 55, <laughs> have gotten into some things that you never thought you would get into. Well, yeah, and, and it's not drugs. It's actually more shameful than that. It's <laughs> um, yeah, I was talking about how my, I just... Last weekend, quite by accident, found myself uh, attracted again to uh, comic books out of seeing how possible it is to get comic books. Uh, It used to be something that would be impossible unless you were a a serious collector and were willing to spend thousands of dollars and then, you know, you don't dare touch it because it has to be pristine. And who wants to live like that? Well, a handful of people. But to my surprise, and uh, surprisingly to my great delight, I found that the whole history, (laughs) uh, the whole Marvel Universe and DC, and not just those, but even like like Archie and Jughead comic books, so many of these things are 
that I remember from my boyhood are available for pre- and then they're not that expensive. You can get whole collections for 10, 20, 20 bucks. Uh, and so I spent most of the weekend, and I say this, of course, as a confession, <laughs> because I like to think of myself as being more sophisticated than this. <laughs> but I spent almost the entire weekend, last weekend, going through and seeing when did it start? If I were to buy this, what would I buy first and second and third? And the whole shebang. And so at, right now, as, as, even as we speak, I'm now following the X-Men and comic books on Kindle. So there you go. And you, you just never know, folks. So don't judge too harshly because you might oh, find yourself. So you're getting same. a digital, not not the pulp. Oh, the di- well, not digital. The pulp paper. Well, digital. La- well, I like digital because it lasts. You know, and comic books especially are very prone to be. You know, they're they're sort of fragile. Um, of course, digital doesn't have the the economic value to it that, uh, that collecting comics would. But I'm not really into that anyway. But. Um, but I like it because I don't have to store anything. I don't have to worry about it being lost, stolen, or the dog throwing up on it or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, but there I am. I hate to oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. I was saying I sound like a typical millennial, but I, I can't read paper. I just, something about it is like, it's like a, uh, like taking NyQuil to me. I just go right to sleep. I have to read on Kindle. Something with the light and it helps keep me awake. See, I'm I'm the exact opposite. I like I like to have the paper. Um, whenever I read a book, I, I I mean I can read on a Kindle. I can read on my phone, but I definitely don't prefer it. I like to have the paper right in front of me. And I'm also a millennial too, but I'm not a I'm not a younger douchebag millennial. <laughs> <laughs> uh. um, speaking of comic books, uh, Michael and I. Well, not really speaking of. It's, it's going to make sense in a minute where I'm going with this, but Michael and I last weekend went to go see Jordan Peterson in Indianapolis. He had a night where he was um, uh, talking about his book. And uh, anyway, I had listened to an interview with him before I left f- to go up there, and he was talking about... Uh, it was an interview with uh, a guy named Russell Brand, who's a, who's a British comedian. Oh, um, he's an actor, super funny guy. And he was talking about, um, I forgot how they got on the topic, but Jordan Peterson was talking about how uh, the, the, the Marvel and the DC superheroes, whenever they first came out, they, they, uh, they only had a few superpowers. So Superman, you know, could, could, could run as fast as a train. He, you know, he had strength and he could fly, but he wasn't invincible. He could still be killed. And as the, as the, franchise became more popular and the writers were running out of ideas they started to give superman more and more powers and then eventually he got to the point to where he was completely invincible where nothing could hurt him he didn't have any weaknesses and they found that when superman got to that point that people stopped reading the story they just weren't interested and so then they invented kryptonite and then the different types of kryptonite, you know, depending on on if you had the red kryptonite, it would affect his vision, or if you had the green kryptonite, it would kill him. You know, I I, I don't know. I was never really into comic books or uh, into superheroes growing up, but but I th- I thought that that concept is really interesting. That that the whole concept of of you want to have your hero archetype be vulnerable, and you see that within the person of Christ. It's it's. Christ is God incarnate, but he's also a man. He's also vulnerable. Mm-hmm. 
You know, he can be killed, and he was killed. He was killed on the cross. And something about that, that, that human element, that, that vulnerability, people are really attracted to. And so anyway, when you were talking about comic books, it made me think about how if, if you're going back to the 1940s and you're going to read them through, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Because like you'll actually be able to see that progression. You'll actually be able to yeah. see the progression of Superman going from being having a few superpowers to being invulnerable, and then eventually, I think it was in the 70s, was when they started, was when they came out with Kryptonite, or maybe it was the 60s, was when they came out with Kryptonite, and, and just how that kind of changes the character of Superman over time. Of course, the 60s, they would introduce some type of drug that would, <laughs> that would harm Superman. <laughs> that was the wonderful baby boomer generation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the ones that are uh, threatening to sink our economy with, uh, with uh, debt right now. No offense, Jeff. No, none, none taken. You're you're a you're a younger baby boomer, so I'm I don't I don't I don't hold you accountable. Mom and Dad, <laughs> I hold you accountable. <laughs> but um, there's something too. It's sort of the modern day mythology, isn't it? All these superheroes running around. Yeah. Uh, this harkens back to the ancient days of Greece and Rome when you had the the gods and goddesses and all those adventures that they got into and how they acted and interacted with, with men and with each other. And uh, that's sort of how I see it. I love the classical mythology, the intricate nature of the gods and the, and the, uh, the jealousies and the contests and the... And right, the, right. They could be outwitted and, and you had the villains and too. And so it, it's... it's uh, it, well, it's mythology just brought into modern day context. Right. So well, was it? Oh, sorry. No. Go ahead. Was it Venus that was the wife to Zeus? Is that with a Greek? I saw a painting at the the um, Art Institute of Chicago, and they had the painting of Venus. She was scolding, I think, Zeus. Which, by the way, she looked like a dude. She had like no <laughs> breasts at all. She had these huge shoulders. I was like, really? I thought Venus was supposed to look uh, like uh, a obviously woman. painted by a liberal. Probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was Hera, and uh, well, uh, one or the other it was uh, Rome. Uh, uh, sort of incorporated a lot of the Greek mythology, and they just sort of changed the names. So I don't, I don't know. I'm. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read the old Greek myths. Yeah, I, Roman myth. I. I was going to say the same thing. I thought Venus um, was. Uh, a Greek god that they had taken, that the Romans had sort of adopted, and they gave it a different name. Because I know that the that the Roman gods were the same as the Greek gods; they just had different names. It's it's kind of, you kind of see that with um, with Germany too, with Germany and um, Scandinavia. Like like a lot of the gods that the that the ancient Germanic tribes worshipped, they were the same gods that the Vikings worshipped. They were Scandinavian in origin; they just had different names. You know, so there was there was Thor, but his name wasn't Thor. It was like Thor. I'm just making this up, but it sounded like Thor. But he was essentially the same character. They also had um, Odin. Uh, Odin, yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and, and so it's 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 from what I understand, I think Venus is just a Greek god that the Romans sort of adopted. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, I was watching a documentary, um, and you've probably seen this documentary. It's called Cave of Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And it's a it's a it's a Werner Herzog documentary. Have you have you seen it? I've heard of it. But I've not I've not seen it. Oh, you got to see it. Yeah, have you seen it yet, Michael? Not yet, I know. I know okay. you keep telling me I need to. Yeah, you can watch it on Netflix if you have a Netflix account. But it's it, it's on there. It's been on there for for as long as I've had Netflix, which is going back to 2010. It's 
but I finally watched it about a month ago. And it's about, uh, you know, for those of you listening, it's about a cave in France called Chauvet Cave, which was discovered in 1992. Um, and what's interesting about the cave is that it was, it was hermetically sealed because the cave, it, w- it was an ancient cave, and it used to be, it used to open, the, the opening of the cave used to be at ground level. But at some point about 12, they, th- they think between 10 and 15,000 years ago, there was a massive landslide that closed the opening of the cave and hermetically sealed the inside of it. And the reason that's important is because in 1994, when these two French uh, cave explorers discovered it, they walked into this cave and they saw these amazing cave paintings that, that date back to the Paleolithic era. And so the documentary is just Werner Herzog documenting these cave paintings. And you see entire sections of a wall. You know, the wall is probably 15 feet tall and maybe 30 feet long. And there are paintings of, of animals that have, been, that have been extinct since the Ice Age. There's paintings of mammoth. There's paintings of um, cave bear, of cave lions, um, uh, of woolly rhinos. This is in France. And, and there's cave paintings of rhinos because there was rhinos in France during that time. And they've been able, since, since it was hermetically sealed, they've been able to get really, really good carbon, carbon sources. And there's one, there's one particular area where they noticed, like up on the wall, it was kind of a natural archway, kind of a natural, kind of a natural door that uh, ancient man had to walk through. And in the corner of the door at the top where the arch was, they saw that there was a lot of black like what looked like charcoal, like soot. And so they were able to sort of figure out this must have been where um, as people walked into the cave with torches, their torches would start to sort of fade and they would sort of hit them on the wall to kind of rekindle them a little bit to, oh. to keep the fire going so they could go further into the cave. They were able to get actual carbon, like actual charcoal from the wall and carbon date that. And it, it, it dated back to about 33,000 Eighty thirty-three thousand BC. Oh wow! So what is you know <laughs> thirty-five thousand years ago? So these 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 oh. paintings these paintings are thirty-five. They're the oldest the oldest human paintings that we've ever discovered. I think they've they've discovered some paintings in Australia from the Aborigines that that they that they think date back to around this era. But the difference is that the Aborigines up until recently uh, would touch the paintings up. They would. They would go and they would repaint them to preserve them. But this this cave, since it was hermetically sealed, hadn't been touched for 15, 16,000 years. And uh, it's really, really interesting. But um, to your point, though, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look up what it was called. One of the things that, that one of the things that they discovered is there was a there was a stalactite. Right. That's what it's called. Like the like the things that hang down in the cave. Where where the cave artist had painted um, a picture of a of a half man half or a half woman half bison like a minotaur basically, mm-hmm. and they talked about how uh, they've they've discovered this same statue in caves nearby um, where ancient men and women had carved it out of like mammoth tusk, and one of the things that Werner Herzog points out, <coughs> excuse me, during the documentary is that is that we still have this this artifact in our modern day in our modern day in our modern day vernacular people still know what the minotaur is they still know what the half woman half bison is and so there's a continuity of culture 
that you see in these caves going back 35,000 years ago. When he said that, I got chills down my spine. And I thought, that, that's powerful. This, this, this object, this image of a woman with the head of a bison and, and, you know, and breasts that were overflowing, I, th- I, th- I, think, it's, it's, it's the, I think it's the symbol of Venus, I think. It's, it's, the, it's a symbol of, you know, to ancient man it represented, um, it represented fertility, they believe. Uh, there's a continuity of culture going all the way back to 35,000 years ago to where we still, still to this day, we, we see that symbol and we know what it is. Yeah. And it's 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 amazing to me. It's absolutely. And then and then I couldn't help but think. And I'm I'm going to go on a rant here just for a second. I couldn't help but think. I feel so sorry for the young Earth creationist who believe that the Earth is only six thousand years old, because the beauty and the wonder of what ancient man was like, and the just the thought experiment that maybe man has been around well, two hundred fifty thousand years. 35,000 years is nothing. What was man like 100,000 years ago? And just to be able to engage in those kind of thought experiments, you can't do if you're a fundamentalist who believes the earth is only 6,000 years old. And what do you do with Chauvet Cave? Yeah. The only argument you have is, well, the carbon dating, you know, I don't, believe the, I don't believe the carbon dating. Well, okay, but there's pictures of mammoths. There's accurate pictures of woolly mammoths in France. The last time mammoths were there, we know, was at least 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. You know, or I'm sorry, 10,000 AD or 10,000 BC, so 12,000 years ago. So it's it's just these are all the thoughts that I was having going through my mind as I watched that documentary. But if you haven't seen it, you really need, you really need to watch it. It's 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 amazing. Uh, I remember uh, reading a series of books uh, 20 or so years ago about um, primitive man, and now here again is my my love of history, because at the time I was determined to start from primitive age and just read all the way through <laughs> until the current era <laughs> and of course that's you know an impossible underta- undertaking but uh, it was very interesting to me to see how different and, and of course we know precious little about about uh, those people but what we've been able to discern about them and how they live especially when it's done in fiction sometimes I learn more about reality from fiction than I do otherwise and you probably have feel, feel that way as well but um, the how and of course they were extremely different and yet they were people <laughs> even even uh, it and they had very, very different physical differences about them. And yet, there's, there was so much in common with modern people. Um, the, the, uh, ur- the urge to survive, of course, is paramount. But once that's been more or less achieved, then all the other things come into play, you know? I want my life to count. I want things to, to matter. And I thought it was so interesting to see how they crossed to, the, to North America over the, the uh, Bering Land Bridge at the time into what they now know they called a corridor of storms because they were traveling through a vast open plain 
that was bordered on either side by huge, thick masses of ice. That's how they got here. That it served as a channel to take them directly from what would now be Russia all the way to uh, uh, North America and, and down through South. It, it, it's incredible. But you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know any of that <laughs> without those discoveries. Right, right. And someone who dismisses the world as well as 6,000 years old uh, deprives themselves of that type of richness. Well, and 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 you know, you think of the bravery, you know, the bravery of those people too. Oh gosh, yes. And and yes. one of the things they talk about in the documentary too is um, they they have a scene. It's a it's a it's a wonderful scene. They have this guy, uh, this German guy, and he's standing in the entrance of a cave. This isn't Chauvet Cave. This is a different cave. And they were talking about other artifacts that they found that date to this time period in caves that are nearby, uh, in the Swabian Alps in Germany. And so they cut to the scene where you see this this guy, and he's dressed he's dressed like an Inuit, he's 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 dressed like a you know like a, 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 a what is the politically incorrect term for an Inuit? <laughs> an I idiot. I don't care. <laughs> huh? I don't care. An idiot Inuit. There we go. Eskimo. That's it. Eskimo. Eskimo. And he, rub those is there, and now we're going to get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Why don't you go back to your igloo? I mean, honestly, <laughs> who lives in a house of snow? You got to be pretty stupid to live there. It's like the people. It's like the the, the Arabs that live in the desert. It's like you, you, I'm sorry, you can't trust those people. <laughs> um, the, now the now the Phoenicians and the Greeks, you can trust them because they lived in the Mediterranean, but uh, <laughs> not those Arabs. Um, uh, no, he's he's standing outside of this cave and he's he's talking about how they discovered a flute in one of the caves and the the flute was made. I think it was the original flute was made. Uh, out of mammoth tusk, but he he recreated the flute. He was like some sort of paleolithic uh, recreation expert. So he would make paleolithic tools and and instruments and, and and artifacts. So he recreated this flute that they had found, and he used the um, leg bone of a vulture to do it. And then in the scene, he goes he goes he says the interesting thing about this flute is that it's a uh, is that it's is that it's pentatonic. So it, it has the same characteristics of a modern-day flute. Oh, wow. And he said, and if, you, if you'd like, I'd, li I'd like to play a few tunes. And so he, he plays a song. And then he, <laughs> and then he says, and then when I, whenever I first reconstructed the instrument, I came across this tune, and he plays the Star-Spangled Banner. <laughs> and and I, I, had that, I had that same thought, Jeff. I thought, here's, here's a group of people who were probably, for at least half of the year, probably starving. Right, they probably mm. didn't have a whole lot of food. This is pre-agriculture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, these are hunter-gatherers. It was so important for them to have something beyond the meager necessities of existence—food, water, and shelter—that they would dedicate the resources to have somebody carve a flute, which probably mm. took them all day, yeah. maybe took, maybe took them several days, so they could have music, so they could ha they could have a way of expressing that. And this is this is why when when, when people. When people start talking in a fundamentalist way about any kind of religion, I just can't help but think there's so much out there's so much out there about the nature of man and the nature of consciousness that is so mysterious and stuff that we don't we just don't understand. Yes. And this was obviously during the time before anybody had heard of Christ. Yes. This this was in Europe during the during the during the Ice Age. Nobody knew who the Jews were. But there's 
the religious impulse. I, I, I think it's the religious impulse to want to make music because oh, there's yeah. something there's something about music sure. that speaks to your soul. Yeah. Where where did that come from? Right. You know. Well, I think it came from God, but it kind of allows you to expand your 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 consciousness beyond uh, all of human history took place in the in the in the deserts of uh, it, you know in the deserts of uh, of uh, Lebanon. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like that's cool story. the The Jewish story is a cool story, but there's more. There's so much more out there, and it's it's another reason why I I I I just cannot believe in the traditional view of of hell either. Because oh, speaking. Of, oh, sorry. I'll let you finish your point. No, that, no, that's okay. Because in order to believe in that traditional view of hell, you have to believe that these people that made that made these flutes, and I say Europe, that they went to hell. Mm-hmm. Because they were born thirty thousand years too soon, or thirty-two thousand years too soon, they didn't happen to be born in you know in in, in uh, uh, you know in the Fertile Crescent, or you know in the territories of the Roman Empire. You know, right. I, I just I, I just think that we put God into such a small box, and I think yeah. we're going to be very surprised whenever we die <laughs> at, at what we're going to yeah. find. But sorry, you were going to. No, I was just saying that I was walking. I, it was. I was on my way to get breakfast. I wish I would have just stayed at the place in Chicago. It was called Wildberry Pancakes and Cafe. But on my way back, uh, I was trying to go to another restaurant. There was like the the Westboro Baptist people, and they're holding up a <laughs> sign. They're like, "You're going to hell if you're a feminist. You wear yoga pants, just all this stuff." And I was just like, "Oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me!" They've like, added yoga pants now to the list of deadly sins. It was sin. it was like fifteen <laughs> things, and and. But you know what? I I had to remind myself I, I was kind of there too, like I not yeah. to that extent, oh, yeah. not to that extent. But I was. You were you were conflicted. Yeah, you were conflicted though. My gosh, I was listening to Francis Chan, Mark Driscoll, the Church, maybe some other stuff too. I well, and, and and by the Church in particular, a small group within mm-hmm. the Church. Which, by the way, speaking of putting God in a box, like they thought that. God is only in this geographical location. If you leave, that your relationship is going to die with Christ. I, I just. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, we're sitting with a man who has a very long history <laughs> of of that kind of thing. And and you know, before I go any further, I I want to say I still belong to the church the church the church that we're talking about. And 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 I can I can I can testify. From my experience, the church is not like that anymore. I just spent a week um, at Little Prairie Bible Camp, um, where I spent a lot of time with the, the the pastor of this particular church, a guy named Tim Gill, and he's 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 not like that. He's 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 a lot different than he used to be, and I wouldn't be able to belong to a church that was that dogmatic and that controlled people to the extent that they used to control people. However, I know there are still people within the church, unfortunately, that have that old. 1980s early 1990s mindset well yeah and it's uh, and it's interesting when you and again uh, people on the outside looking in it's sort of like uh, like the uh, the when we had the pedophile conversation or the serial killer conversation outside looking in they're easy to dismiss as oh they're just a bunch of uh, uh, fundamentalist dictators, or they're you know, they're they're cultists, or whatever the case might be. And yet, w- when you when you know them, 
and you and you and you see the 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 human people that they are, and you know that their motivations are pure, and they're not. <laughs> you can't just dismiss these people this way, and and I I suspect it, it's that way with almost anyone you could come up with in humanity. Um, and having because uh, even even having been in the uh, on the receiving end of a lot of uh, attempts at control, and also being on the giving of that and and trying to control and manipulate others and, and guilt trip others. Of course, I I have more than my fair share of that to be guilty of myself. Um, there was never a sense of. It was almost as though it were, it was, um, unconscious. You know, everyone. I know Byron Katie, who I I throw out there quite often because mainly because I agree with just about everything the woman has to say about everything. <laughs> Is um, she makes the the argument that everybody ultimately is innocent because we're all doing the best we can with what we believe right now. And no one can believe anything other than what they believe at the time they're believing it. And so, uh, although coming from a system that I, that became just intolerable for me, and often, I often, uh, you know, would get angry, and sometimes thinking about it now, I can still get angry about it. But I think th through uh, people like Byron Katie, I was able to make a, diff a distinction between the people and the system. Uh, if I were going to judge the people, I'd have to judge myself. I remember being with people in their face, people who had now sacrificed to help me, <laughs> in my ministry at the time and just throwing guilt at them and shame at them and you need to do better at this and why didn't why didn't you do that and they're standing in front of me crying literal tears crying and i'm still harping on these things that don't i don't even remember what they were now and if they don't mean anything now, they meant probably even less then, in the heat of the moment. And so, it, so if I'm going to judge, I've got to judge myself <laughs> along with that as well. And I don't think judging gets anywhere. And I, uh, there were a lot of hurt feelings all the way around, and yet. Uh, there were there were there were more good things than there were bad, and I and in looking back now and with some distance, I can see where I think it was absolutely necessary for me to be where I was, even even to see the the things I look at now as as uh, not healthy, <laughs> because uh, I needed to learn from all that. And so, it's it's a it's an odd mixture with me when I remember 
because on the one hand, there's a repulsion <laughs> that just naturally comes up when I think of it. And yet there's a, whenever I see those people that I used to be around so much, the only thing that comes up is love. Uh, and that's it. And, and of course, that's really, isn't that the case really of, of, uh, of reality in general, I think. Right. Well, and, and, and several things that you said made me think. I, I, I feel the same way, too. I, I went through a period, and what we're talking about is a, a church that Jeff used to be a part of, that I'm still a part of today, that Michael used to be a part of. And um, this church has, has, has played a huge role in our lives, I think. And I think even you would admit this, um, more of a positive role than a negative role, for sure, yes. in spite of the bad things. But... I went through a period where I, I, where things were said to me that should have not not been said. And had I been a little bit older and more mature, I would have told the people uh, where they can shove their heads, or I might have <laughs> actually physically shoved their heads. <laughs> but but when I look at those people now, I don't even think about. Right. I don't even think about those moments. I realize that we were all caught up in the in the in the in the ethos of 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 the culture of the church at the time. And it's something I couldn't help but think about whenever we went to go see Jordan Peterson last um, Friday. It was last Friday. Uh, I'm sitting there in an auditorium. There's probably 10,000 seats, maybe 15,000 seats. 2,500. Okay, I was way way off. Way off. 2,500 still. 2,500. There's not a a seat in the the place. Everything's filled. Mm. I'm looking around. It's, It's mostly young men. Between the ages of twenty and thirty-five, I'd say there's um, there's some women, but it's it's mostly young men. And Jordan Peterson is talking about sorting out your life. Uh, he's talking about responsibility. He's talking about um, taking up your cross, taking up your cross and 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 burying it. And I couldn't help but think there's a hunger here for the message of the Bible. There's a hunger here for the Christian message. It's not, it's, but it's somehow it's, it's being lost. And I think it's being lost in the churches. It's being lost in the dogma. It's being lost in the, in the, in the periphery, the stuff that doesn't matter. And here you have a man, a Canadian psychologist, who has a voice that sounds like Kermit the Frog, who's selling out theaters across the country to, to deliver a biblical message. And I can't help but think that, that the particular area that you, that you came to faith in, that, that style of, of that ecclesiastical style, that 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 heavy-handed, manipulative, cult-like behavior, it worked for the youth back then. It doesn't work now. No. It, it, it it just it doesn't work, and I think a lot of it is because of the internet. I think it's, a lot of it is yeah. because people are a lot more skeptical. But the hunger and the desire for truth is still there. And I just I just couldn't help but think like uh, you know the church is the church is missing is missing an opportunity here. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, part of me thinks that that we're just going to have to let go of the dogma. We're going to have to be more open-minded. One of the things that Jordan Peterson refuses to answer, and people ask him, is, is, is are you a Christian? And I, I saw one, in it, one interview where he said, yes, I am a Christian, but I don't like to answer that because it's such a complicated question. Yes, people, I, I, I concur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... But people want to boil it down to, uh, you know, to a, to a catchphrase. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, it's, it's, 
it's kind of like saying, do you believe in God? Well, it depends on, it really depends on what you mean by God. Right. You know, and, uh, but if, if you even, in, in a lot of churches, if you even say what I just said, you know, you'll, you'll be looked down upon. You'll be looked down upon as a, you know, persona non grata. Um, and I think, I think the church is going to have to let go of that. If we're going to reach the next generation, especially the next generation of men who I fear are being, are being lost to the culture war. Hmm. And, um, but yeah, I just, just you talking about that made me think of all that, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the church in America has changed, but I really do believe that unless, unless, unless the church changes in some sort of dramatic fashion, like I said, I, I don't know what the prescription is, but it, it, it's going to become irrelevant if it hasn't already. Yes. Well, and I'm I'm reading a, a book right now called uh, God Without Religion, and it's interesting. That it makes a, a. I mean, a lot of the points I've 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 uh, heard before, but and yet there are some things that are are, are kind of uh, you know new for me to chew on. But one of the points he talks about is the binding nature of law. And, uh, and of course, you know, Christians can identify readily with, yes, the Jewish law is binding and we, we needn't go by that. But uh, he makes the case, even biblically, that all law <laughs> is uh, really quite worthless in, in freeing people. Um, you either are you, you either tr- find yourself trying to obey the law and trying to obey the rules, and and good luck even knowing what they are, because as you know, God help them in churches, and they don't mean to do this deliberately, most of them, but even those things change constantly, and not everybody is abreast on what the current laws are, and oh oh well we're not doing that anymore, okay, and well, why not, and, and I mean just trying to keep track of all that, number one, and then trying to to obey all that. Well, good luck. <laughs> Even if you're baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, good luck. Um, it's, it's only can at best become a source of frustration and ultimately hopelessness. And at the end, you, ca- you wonder, am I all right or not uh, in God's eyes? Have I, am I good enough? Am I, have I done enough? And you never know. You can never know with any certainty. Yes. So law, in whatever sense it is, has got to be, you know, it's, it's sort of either all or nothing. You either live by, you either, well, you either die by the law or you live by grace. And there really is no room, there's no gray area in that. It's either or. But religion, in order for it to exist, I don't know how religion exists without that, because after all, you sort of have to have something in common, otherwise why, why be a thing to begin with, you know? And in order to have a thing in common, then you have to have common standards, and then you have to have this thing, whether it's a, a book or just in word of mouth, these are our standards, and these are particularly our standards, because after all, we have to be uh, different from the other thousand and one churches out there who all have their standards. Well, there you go. There's law again. So I don't know what it is. I just don't believe that uh, 
the way church is now. I, I, I simply can't believe that that's what Christ died for, for us to live this way. And to go and listen to, for the you know, 190,000th time, something that we've heard 190,000 times ago, and pretend that we're hearing it for the first time, and pretending that we're getting something different out of it, and pretending that we're not bored to tears, and we can't wait till it's over so we can go to the mall or, or the, you know, the theater or whatever it is. And, and I think you're right. I think something uh, obviously has got to change because people, I think in ages past, were sort of stuck with that, whether they wanted to be or not. And now they're not. And, and things, things are going to change whether the church wants it to or not. Well, and, and um, reading Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, uh, An Antidote to Chaos, brought me back to faith and, and brought, me, brought me back to the faith that I, had all but, that I had all but abandoned. And it's not a Christian book. It's not, it's not an explicitly Christian book, but it is a Christian book. The message is, is, the message is the message that you see in the person of Christ. But one of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about in one of the chapters of the books, which I thought was incredibly profound, I mean, I, I, I underlined whole passages as I was reading this, as he was talking about how the, the 19th century philosophers completely destroyed the, the sandy foundation that the church was built upon. And he talks about how Nietzsche, in his opinion, Nietzsche was the one who delivered the death blow to the church. And Nietzsche, by the way, wasn't happy about this. Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche accused the church of committing suicide because it refused to build its principles upon deeper, more substantial archetypes. The archetypes that are right there in the text. It, 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 it closed itself off into this, into this dogmatic box of, of, of ritual and tradition and holding things sacred that should, ne should have never been held sacred. And whenever the ra whenever the, first it was the rationalist, then it was the empiricist, then it was the scientific revolution in Darwin, and then you had Nietzsche coming in and saying, "We've we've we've destroyed the intellectual credibility of the church, and what is going to follow is going to be the most chaotic period in in in, in human history." And uh, because Nietzsche, he said that the 20th century is going to be the most violent, bloody century that we've, that we've ever seen because we've destroyed the foundation of Western civilization. But he blamed the church. He blamed the church for their lack of intellectual honesty and curiosity for bringing that about. And what's interesting is that Jordan Peterson talks about this. He thinks, you know, one of the things um, that I was thinking about last summer whenever I was, I was listening to an audio book by a guy named Douglas Murray. Uh, it, it's a book about the immigration crisis in Europe. And he had a chapter where he, where he talks about how Islam is replacing Christianity in Europe. And he said, and so he kind of does like a, like a, like a, he kind of does like an excavation of, of the death of Christianity in Europe. And he talks about how the, 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 the intellectual movements that, that began in the, you know, began with Hobbes, you know, began with Thomas Hobbes and ended with, with the, with the, uh, with the postmodernist philosophers in France. They, they destroyed the intellectual credibility of Christianity. I say that they destroyed the intellectual credibility of the church, not of Christianity. And, and so now Europeans were kind of staggering. They're, they're, like, they're, like a, they're like a house that just had the foundation blown out of it. 
you know, they're 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 pitching this way and they're pitching and yawning and 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 the winds are threatening to tear the house down and what replaces christianity well it's a it's a it's a it's a religion that is very very dogmatic very very strict very 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 strong it's a religion that asserts itself that that is not a that is not a that is not ashamed of its own shadow that will take its side in an argument and that religion is islam and but anyway, one of the things he said in the in the book, I was mowing the grass while I was listening to this, and I, I had to stop. I had to stop what I was doing, and I had to go sit down, and I had to just think about this. He said, "How can you return to the faith once the intellectual credibility of that faith is gone? Can you just pretend that you don't know what you know?" Mm. And he didn't have an answer, but Jordan Peterson in his book talks about how he believes there is an answer. And he believes that you can find the answer in Carl Jung, who said, what you do is you confront the dragon, you rescue your father from the belly of the whale, taking an a archetype from the movie Pinocchio. You, you, you rescue your dead grand, you rescue your dead father. You resurrect the religion that your forefathers gave their lives to construct. These, these archetypes that have been passed down to us, going back to our conversation about the cave, this, this continuity of culture that took our ancestors hundreds of thousands of years to develop and we're benefiting from, you rescue that, but you do it in a way to where it's, to where it's honest and you have intellectual credibility and you don't bog yourself down with dogma and, and, and doctrine that is intellectually not credible and stupid. And, and that, that's, what, that's what he's doing. That's what Jordan Peterson's message is. And people are, are flocking to it. People, there's a hunger for it. There's a hunger for the message. And um, like I said, I don't know what that looks like in real life. I don't know what that looks like because I also think that that type of message only, only, only appeals to, for lack of better words, people who are smart, people who can grasp some of the concepts. If we can find a way to boil it down to make it to where anybody could grasp the concepts without becoming overly dogmatic, I think that's your answer. But I think part of the reason why the church has, has become so dogmatic is that, is that not everybody's able to grasp those deeper principles. You know, they're not able to, I mean, I, I had a conversation, Jeff, Michael, with a guy, and I told him I don't believe that the, uh, that the Genesis creation story is literal. Mm-hmm. I said, I believe it's a metaphorical story. And he said, well, I don't know how, I, I don't think I could ever adopt that view because how do you know when to differentiate between what's, metaphorical and what's literal and I thought well you do it all the time whenever Jesus told the story of the of the uh, uh, of the Good Samaritan it was obviously metaphorical right so but he didn't say here's a metal here's a metaphorical story dummy (laughs) he just told the story you use your mind sure and and you can do that with the Bible but I think that people think that it's sacrosanct to do that because it's the Word of God Mm. and they believe in this false you know, slippery slope argument that if you interpret one story metaphorically, you'll interpret the whole thing metaphorically and then it won't matter. And it's, no, no, metaphors are powerful. Metaphors often are more powerful than the physical things they represent. Yeah, oh, well, yes, yes. But anyway, I, I didn't mean to go on a rant, but I just... Francis Chan kind of had that dogmatic view. He said, if you, if you even question one syllable of God's word, then you're putting your... God's intellect below yours. I'm thinking, how how stupid is that? Yeah. 
like, where's the growth in that? If you well, just his, his his book, um, erasing hell, I think it was. I, th- I think it was what it was yeah, called. Yeah, that was his argument. Is who are you to question, oh man? It, it's the, it's the argument from Romans, you know, where where the apostle Paul says, uh, how how can the thing say, how how can the thing that was created say to him who created them, why have you made me like this? And that was his whole argument. Now. You see, it's a terrible uh, argument, Paul. Yes, it's a terrible argument, and that's what Nietzsche was talking about. the The intellectual credibility of the church collapsed because of shitty arguments like that. Sorry, uh, forgive me. Well, and and in today's world, at our fingertips now, within minutes, <laughs> is a vast. Uh, well, you don't even have to. Well, you can order it immediately on Kindle, and some most of the stuff is even free. Right within minutes, you have uh, research that you can do that has that would put him to shame. As you said, the '80s are over, and that, we, that genie's not going to go back into the bottle. And then you have right at your finger, and, and a lot of it is free. Well, that book, Hope Beyond Hell, is free. Where the man goes into meticulous detail about words. Uh, the Greek words, the, the 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 Roman words, what the 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 Hebrew text, what it meant, what it meant then as opposed to now, well, how the how how it was in, how things were interpreted in terms of cultural context. It's no longer possible for someone who's intellectually honest and curious to be um, frightened or beaten into obeisance by Francis Chan saying it's one way or the other. Well, who's he? <laughs> it's it's one way or the other, really. Is that true? And I've noticed, and we probably all can uh, relate to this, um, people who want to hold uh, folks within a certain way of looking at things, they will even from the pulpit, present it as if there are only two, maybe three options. That's it. And you know, when I began to really have my freedom is when I simply began to question that. It's either this, this, or this. Well, how does he know? Maybe there's a fourth or even fifth option that he's never heard about. Do I, how, do I know that there's only three just because, he, just because he's saying it? Doesn't necessarily make it true. And today, sure enough, as soon as you get home from the church or whatever it is, the meeting or wherever it is, within three minutes you can go and go, oh, well, my goodness, there's 10. Yeah. There's not just three, there's 10. And, but, and look at this, there's 20. Right. Right. And so it, it, the hold that the church had on people, and by church, I, I don't care whatever church it is, the hold that the church used to have is gone. For the most part, it's gone. Now, there, there are some people who are still in it for whatever. But the stranglehold that it had on people's minds and hearts is over. And that genie's not going, not going back. But I really do hope and pray, and I do pray about this you know, every day. Uh, because in a vacuum, there's the opportunity for something so much horrendously worse than the church ever dreamed of being to, to take its place. And that cannot happen. It can't. 
I would rather see, I honestly think I would rather see the world be destroyed in a World War III type conflagration than to endure worldwide Islam. And well, and that's and that's that's the fear that I have because there's this weird urge that there's this weird impulse that people have to be drawn to a sort of totalitarian. Well, and and I don't think it's weird. It's it's people are drawn to totalitarian ideologies because totalitarian ideologies give you the answer, mm. and there's something comforting in that. And 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 I I completely agree with you. I would rather go back to a medieval type world where where the where the Catholic Church. Uh, had a stranglehold on religious thought than to descend into a modern day version of, of, of that with Islam. Yeah. And that's the fear that I have is, is I think that there's too many people out there that would just take hold of the, of the, that would rather adopt the fundamentalist totalitarian ideology than to think through the complexities of what do you do with the, with the fundamental theology that you see in the New Testament, now that now that we've unshackled ourselves from the things that aren't necessary, how do you build a church? How do you how do you build a how do you build a system of of, of belief where people feel like they belong and they feel like they're a part of something? Because those things are important. People are tribal, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's a very very difficult problem. And you know, you think you see it every now and then with with certain churches. And then the leader dies, or the leader steps down, and then the church falls apart. And you realize, oh, the people that came to that church were there because of the personality of the person who was delivering the sermons on Sunday, not necessarily because of the teaching. And it's it's a depressing thought. It really is a depressing thought. That's what happened with Mars Hill. Yeah, yeah, that happened with Mark Driscoll's church. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of reaching back a little bit here with the Jordan Peterson thing. As long uh, as you don't reach around. <laughs> <laughs> no, but something I... That's I was, a courtesy, by the way. It is. <laughs> so According to Arlie Ermey. Oh, God rest, rest his soul. Peace, yeah. <laughs> what, what a shame. Um, I was kind of expressing to Jonathan something. Well, let me just preface it with this. During the Q&A after the lecture with Jordan Peterson, somebody asked, they said, uh, I'm thinking about taking my life very soon. Uh tell me why I shouldn't. And he was talking about how uh, families never recover from that decades later and how they always blame themselves about what they could have done differently. Mm-hmm. And my spider, web tho- my spider web of thoughts went from that to past conversations you and I had had at, at how these people had had these near-death experiences and they saw the impact, yeah. the ripple effect that their suicide had had. And I didn't really... <laughs> It didn't make much sense to me at that moment, but it kind of made sense in that in that moment uh, after Jordan Peterson's uh, Q and A. I was just thinking, yeah, if people that you love are affected of that, are, are affected by that for the rest of their life, think about how many people they come in contact with in forty years. Yeah. And even though I think it gets less strong as it goes out into the world it still affects the world because they affect those people. The, their attitude has been permanently altered on the way they view the world. And they act to these people differently than they would have if you hadn't have killed yourself. And then the people who got a, were affected by their behavior affect other people and just keeps on going out. But I, I thought 
Yeah, it was yes. crazy how something we talked about two or three years ago just made sense to me now. And you know, in uh, the opposite end of that, in the positive side of it, I think goes to the question of how, when you let the laws go, how is the world affected? It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a gentleman named Howard Storm. He was a uh, very staunch, very determined atheist. Uh, he didn't like people uh, very well. He was, he was pretty much an asshole. Um, uh, he taught art, I do believe, at, at the college level. He ended up having a very, very detailed near-death experience um, during a trip that he was making with his students in Europe uh, and ended up, you know, they, he, was, he was gone. He had to wait way too long for a doctor. Even at the hospital, he had to wait too long for a doctor to see him. He knew he was leaving. He was telling his wife goodbye. Uh, he still didn't believe in God or an afterlife or anything like that. So he dismissed his rubbish. So there wasn't really that fear. But I, I need to necessarily uh, condense things because uh, of the uh, extensive nature of his experience. But suffice it to say, for the purposes of our conversation, what he was shown in the way the world is affected is by loving who you are around. That's it. And he told the person, I don't know if he identified the person as God or Christ or whoever it was, just a, a, a guide or whatever it was, but he said, I don't, that can't work. <laughs> that can't possibly work. It's too simple. And the guide, I think, laughed and said something like, oh, really? Nonetheless, that is the plan. That is how it, it happens. And people can decide whether they're going to be a part of that or not. But, the, but God's plan takes effect whether you know, we just choose to not be a part of it or not. But that's how it works. You love who's next to you at the time that they're there. And the world is affected. And I believe that is the answer. Well, and um, it's actually interesting that you said that. And I know I've I've been talking about Jordan Peterson a lot, but or um, fanboys. And it's okay. yeah, well, and to, and there's there's a backstory with me, but I'm not going to share on the podcast. But I will share with you after after we're done why this book meant so much to me. Um, but that's that's what the book's about. The book is about you know the the very first chapter is stand up straight with your shoulders back, and then. The next chapter is uh, uh, get your own house in order before you criticize the world. And then one of the chapters is assume that the person that you're assume that the person that you're talking to knows something that you don't. And it's it's the book is about it's it's focused on the individual. It's focused on starting small. What's what's in front of you? What's in front of you that you could make a little bit better? What is the hell that's right in front of you? Literally. That you could that you could provide some order to and, and turn it into heaven, and maybe for some people and, and this is one of the things that he always says maybe I'm talking to maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're 
addicted to drugs and you're in your you're in you know you're in your parents basement and your room is a mess start by making your bed start by picking up your room you know it's it's a very individual focus and i i started putting a lot of those principles into 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 work you know and i remember um this epiphany i had about a month ago where elaine and i were arguing about something and she was she was criticizing me and i and i i stopped and i just asked myself the question what if she's right what if everything she's saying about me is right and 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 i thought of you jeff because this is the but this is this is the byron katie method it's the it's doing the work you know you, you you ask yourself okay maybe what she's saying is right maybe not but i have to at least consider it first and it's 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 a terrifying proposition because if what she's saying is right it means that you have a lot to work on. <laughs> it means that you're deeply flawed, but it's better to to know that you're deeply flawed because then you have something that you can work on than to go throughout life never examining yourself. Mm. You know, it's 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 like what Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. And um and so I had this I had this epiphany one day whenever she was she was criticizing me about something and I, I thought I'm just gonna listen to what she's saying. And I'm going to assume that what she's saying is right. And about 90% of what she was saying was, was absolutely correct. 10% was her lashing out in anger. But I, f I found that was really helpful, and it's improved my relationship with her in a very, very short period of time. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about is if you can just, if you can just every day make a small change to make your life better, to, to, to improve the hell that is that is your existence. If you can make the catastrophe of existence a little bit better, one day at a time, imagine where you'll be in a year. And then yes. imagine where you'll be in five yes. years. And he said, yeah. and, and, and he, he says, and in 10 years, you won't even recognize the person that you once were. <laughs> and, and just, yeah. just, you know, to the point that you made, that's absolutely true. That's, that's what, that's how it, that's how it has to happen. There's no such thing as a small gesture. No, no. I'm convinced. Yeah, me too. Me too. I may have to change a battery here. You know what? I think maybe because Dad just uh, messaged and asked when you were going to be going. I don't know how long we've been going for, but I also oh. I also need to probably get home okay. soon. But well, there's some things I was wanting to yeah. tell Jeff off, Mike, if that's okay. Sure, sure. Well, I guess in that case, uh, that summarizes podcast. Uh, it's Jeff. been it's been great. This yeah, has been fantastic. Has. This has been fun. You'll we'll have, have to have do it again. Yeah. And preferably not in a rape closet, not in a rape room. Yeah, whatever this is. <laughs> we're, we're in an old bank vault, and uh, it's four foot by 12 foot. Yeah, we, me and Ben made the joke that we this is where we store our, uh, our torture victims in here. Well, you know, I, it just occurred to me, without the lights on, it would be a good haunted house place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 it would be. It would also be a good... Uh, uh, a good room for the TSA to use to do their to do their searches <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that Al Qaeda, you know, to quote Alex Jones, to make sure Al Qaeda is not in your grandmother's colostomy bag. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Michael.
Es ist so.